inside the Post-Dispatch. Hi, Liz. Hey, Beth. How you doing? It's been kind of a rough couple of weeks, I'll be honest. I had COVID. Oh, no. well, I know, but it sounds like you're feeling better. <laughs> I am feeling better. I am masked, though. Yeah, so, me everyone, too. don't worry. You're not going to get COVID just listening to this podcast. <laughs> Yikes. I hope it's not that contagious these days. Uh, well, today we are talking to David Hun, a longtime journalist at the Post-Dispatch, who was recently promoted to local news editor. David first joined the Post as a reporter in 2005, and during his two stints at the paper, has led business coverage and now adds Metro coverage to that repertoire. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. <laughs> um, David is also, I'm going to say, one of like the funnier people, but in a very dry way in the newsroom. So just to give you some color. Well, that is fantastic to hear. I can promise you that if I'm funny, it's not intentional. Hmm. I, don't, I, I think sometimes it is intentional. <laughs> yeah. Too modest. Um, first, could, oh, sorry. Oh, could you fill in just a little bit about your background at The Post? Yeah, of course. So I came in 2005. I was an education reporter at the Bakersfield, Californian. I was in Teach for America as a youngin in uh, inner city Los Angeles. And so I was really passionate about school reporting. And I came here as a school's reporter. Um, I covered a million amazing things as a school's reporter. It's just still one of my favorite beats because it's not just about schools. You cover poverty. You cover wealth. You cover um, inequities. Politics, I'd imagine. You yeah. cover politics. I mean, I wrote, you know, I investigated superintendents, um, I investigated coaches, uh, you know, it's just, it's such an incredible beat. I mean, I absolutely loved it. So I was in education reporting for a long time, and I reported to Marsha Koenig, um, the current Metro editor, who I am, whose shoes I am trying to step into. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. And Marsha is retiring from the paper after 42 years. Yes. It's going to be impossible to replace her. And I'm not going to try, right? Like, she was my mentor. She was my boss. She, she's done, I mean, you know, the note she wrote to staff when she left talked about a haze of cigar smoke in the newsroom <laughs> and, and times that are just almost mythical. Um, <laughs> yeah, the industry has changed so much. The world we live in has changed so much. And yet to have someone who has all of that knowledge and perspective, um, it's a loss for the newsroom. But to your point, having been a mentee, you know, under her since 2005, I think is really also rare in this industry to have that kind of continuity and mm. that continuity taking at the helm. So I love you saying that. I, I appreciate that a ton. And I, it's a really great point that I hadn't thought on. It is rare to have that much time with someone to help, you know, to kind of learn the ropes. I mean, listen, I'm not going to come in with the wisdom of Marsha Koenig. Like, that's just not possible. Um, (laughs) She's, you know, of her many, many abilities, you know, first off, she's a dictionary of St. Louis. (laughs) Yes. Facts, right? She can't read a story and not know something that we didn't quite get right, you know, and that's just invaluable. And and I can't replace that. Um, You know, luckily... We have a few other folks who are like that also, who are going to help a ton, including Roland Close, mm-hmm. uh, politics editor, who mm-hmm. knows, you know, is kind of an equivalent dictionary. Um, <laughs> Lots of institutional knowledge. Yes, a ton, you know. Um, but but Marsha also had this unbelievable ability to make problems less uh, serious. I mean, mm-hmm. she, she just knew how to handle things. Right. And, th- and that wisdom is you know, something that I aspire to. So I hope I can get there. We'll, well see. Yeah. What's You've mentioned a couple of things that you yeah. have, that are Marsha's attributes, but what's something that she has taught you? 
Well, th- th- that one specifically, like learn how to handle situations in ways that make them better, not mm-hmm. worse, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when, it, don't escalate unless you have to, right? And that's something that I've just watched her do over time. And frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to pretend like I'm great at it yet. I'm learning. I'm trying to figure it out. But that's something for sure. Um, she has a quiet leadership that, I, I, that I've learned a lot about, you know, like how do you lead? Sometimes she, she can guide folks. In way they don't even know they're being guided. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just an amazing skill. Yeah. So, like, I think that kind of quiet leadership is something I want in my arsenal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not me by nature. By nature, I'm very overt and very um, direct. And so this has been a fantastic thing for me to watch happen. The transition from reporter to editor is one that some people say, no, I want to be a reporter. I like reporting. And other people, like that, that's what they aspire to. They, they start out as a reporter and they want to become an editor. Which one were you? So, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I never, I always wanted to be an editor. I always knew that that was something that I could do. But I never wanted to be an editor when the time came. Like it had come <laughs> several times and I was like, no, no, no. I'm very happy being a reporter. Thank you very much. I really right. love this work. What happened was we downsized editors. Right. And this was in... Uh, at least four, about four years ago. And um, it was the last big cut here. Is that true? I think that's right. And we lost half our editing staff. Right. And at the same time, some some editors, understandably, decided to do other things. Like, I get it, right? Like, it's a really hard job. So when that happened, you know, there just wasn't another choice. Like, somebody had to say, I'll help. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I did. So... Um, that was a, t- that was a really, really stressful time. <laughs> I bet, yeah. What is that transition like going from reporting to editing, which is a little bit more management than investigative? Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to manage your peers. So like people that you know and love mm-hmm. and, and that you have learned how to, your relationship is all peer to peer, right? Mm-hmm. And so then that's an equal relationship. It's very difficult to become a manager of people who you've been peers with. Yes. Um, um, also, it's just hard to decide I'm going to make decisions. Like, that's just difficult. For, that was difficult for me to do. Maybe it's not hard for some people. But for me, it, like, it took a like, okay, nope, this is my decision to make. I'm going to make it, right? Like, that's hard to do. And yeah, well, and that decisiveness, when you're used to it being someone else's role, especially, I would imagine, from one day to the next, now it's yours. And yep. how do you tackle that? And yep. how do you take it on? Yeah, exactly. That's all hard. And part of it for me was just learning, like, um, no, I, there's nobody else to make this. Like, I'm, I'm making this decision. And if I don't make the decision, it's actually worse for my reporters in the newsroom and the readers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, here's a great example. If you tell a reporter at 10 a.m., like, hey, I think maybe we want to do something that might be kind of like this, right? <laughs> They're pretty much just going to ignore you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then it, and then you come up to them after the afternoon meetings and you're like, hey, how did that maybe something kind of might have would have worked? And they're like, look at you like you're an idiot. And you're like, what do you like? I didn't I made a call on it didn't go through, you know, like, oh, right. Well, now we need a story on it. So can you get working? That's awful for everybody. Right. Yes. So it's just way better to go in the morning at, whenever you can, as soon as you can and say, hey, we're doing this. This is what we're going for. Go get it. And do your best and it's going to be on the A1 tomorrow. <laughs> so like, <laughs> let's just make it work. Right. Yeah. And, and then if it falls apart, fine. Right. But, but if you go for it, 
you're going to get a way better product than if you're like kind of, and, yeah. if, and if somebody says like, Hey, I, I can't do that right now. Like I've got this. It's like, okay, got it. No problem. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But yeah. I mean, that's just an example of kind of learning leadership. Um, I was going to say that speaks to the leadership element, the decisiveness and confidence of that leadership. Uh, and I think a big piece that listeners who might not be familiar with journalism or kind of the day to day in, in this industry is, you know, really mentoring and guiding. You spoke to this with your relationship with Marsha, um, but not putting yourself or your voice in the story, but nurturing the voice of reporters and being able to be that um, advocate and supporter, but also making tough calls with them about, I think this needs to go. I think we should take this in another direction. You know, how did you make that transition from a reporter to editor? Yeah. Um, it, it, there are some similarities there to what we just talked about in that some of that was just me realizing like, no, it is the it is the best for our readers. It is the best for the staff. Everybody is happiest if if I just am vocal and um, committed, right? And and so it does help that I care a ton about writing. I've spent a lot of time writing. I've written a lot of stuff, and I have a really developed sense of what I think a story needs. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that helps a lot. I, I, in my opinion. You should ask my reporters. I give very <laughs> clear guidance on what they need. Like, no, you don't have a good quote. Go get a good quote. My reporters make fun of me because I'm like, <laughs> you need a quote that says blank. And they're like, I, I can't make up a quote, David. Like, what are you talking right. about? But like, and lead, I'm, the, you know, lead the source to kind of get, well, to the, get to that point. And I always say, like, listen, I get it. I'm not, I'm saying you need a great quote here. You go, fig- like, you go talk to your sources and figure out what, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not telling you, but, but, but you need a great quote here. Right. Right. And they get it. They get it. They laugh at me, but they get it. The <laughs> other thing that I say all the time to my reporters is, why do we care? Why are we writing this story? Like, why mm-hmm. does this matter? What's the big picture? You know? Yes. And. Th- and do you find that as a way to kind of keep us out of the weeds and to be reminding readers to that point of why this is vital for them to information to know? Listen, we are one of how many news organizations in the region if we don't tell a reader within the first three or four or five paragraphs why they're reading this story, we have failed, right? Like yeah. they need to know really fast why this matters or the story should be four inches, not 30, right? Right. And that's fine too. Four-inch stories are great. They tell readers a lot of important stuff. For listeners of the podcast who aren't familiar, when we talk about inches and in stories, it's literally column inches. So a four-inch story is very short, maybe two to three paragraphs. A 30-inch story is like a, a front-page story for the Sunday paper that takes up uh, a little bit more space. Fair amount of space. Yeah. A 30-inch story could be on a daily It could daily be. Paper. It could definitely be a daily, as I said, front-page story on the Sunday. That was yeah. more like 60-inch. A 60-inch story would be a long read That'd be a long us. read. A 30-inch story would be a well, a well-written, well-thought-out, you know, right. good length. But now you know about column inches yeah. and journalism <laughs> lingo. Something I'm sure anybody listening to this... Um, you know, probably doesn't care that much about, but that's fine. <laughs> that's all right. Um, Let's cycle, circle back though really quick because you started talking about how yeah. you started in education. Yes. That's not where you were working when I first met you back in 2014. Right. So I went from education to City Hall. Okay. I covered St. Louis City Hall under the Slay administration for several years. Um, that was eye-opening. I remember when I went there, I told my editors, listen, I'm not interested in politics. I'll cover government. I care a lot about good government, but I'm not going to cover politics. 
Ha. <laughs> like, yeah. there's a learning curve. Hand in you hand. You can't cover government if you don't cover politics. Yes. So that was, um, you know, eyes wide open. Um, I learned a ton about government, about the city, about, you know, the, the way this stuff works. Um, after a few years there, the, I don't know if you all remember this, but we started kind of running into these troubles, financial troubles, with the Zoo Museum District. Mm, yes. Um, we had specifically the History Museum was in a land deal that raised eyebrows. And when that happened, um, actually, Alan Ashkar, our new executive editor, mm-hmm. said, and Adam Goodman, the, the former Metro editor, right. um, said, uh, hey, David, you're just going to do this for a while. Mm. And so for a while, all I did was cover the Zoo Museum District which, let me tell you, was so much fun. <laughs> like, that beat was fantastic. What made it fun? Well, first off, very few people realize this, but the Zoo Museum District is almost entirely public. The yes. zoo is a public institution. The art museum is a public institution. And the science center is a public institution. The Botanical Garden and the History Museum are nonprofits that get taxpayer funding. So they also fall into organizations that... Um, law requires transparency mm-hmm. so i just got to do stuff that nobody had done i went to those meetings uh, you know i i dug into their finances i mean it, it wasn't like a you know cute tiger cub um beat it was like a hard-hitting serious yeah yeah and and i was not loved like those institutions i can tell you now are happy that that period has ended like it was crazy <laughs> There was just a lot of stuff going on that we'd never written about or hadn't written about for years. Right. So it was a ton of fun. At the end of, you know, as that kind of stuff was, you know, kind of winding down, um, the Rams lease came up. (laughs) Yes. And again, my editors came to me and said, this is going to be big. You don't have any idea how big it's going to be. And I was like, yeah, whatever. We'll see. (laughs) Right. The Rams are in town. They're never going to leave. You know, is this really that big a deal? And we were so much younger then. And then for the next year, all I did was write Ram stories for like at least a year. I think I wrote 700 stories that year. And you traveled to like the NFL owners meeting. I went to almost every owners meeting. I went to Inglewood when the, when Cronkies, Mm -hmm. you know, purchase came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, just every way we could cover it, we covered it. And readers gobbled it up. I mean, I've never been so important in my life, and I never will be again. <laughs> Did you get <laughs> emails true. from readers? I mean, like... I, I mean, I just cannot tell you the kind of reader feedback I got. I got right. so... I mean, I, you know, on Twitter, mm-hmm. like, you know, it was just nuts. And then they left. <laughs> and then the Rams left. Yeah. Yes. And I think that really highlights something that, you know, the Post can has is uniquely positioned to do is to be able to dedicate reporters to these really important stories and embed them in that beat uh, so that the city is getting live updates, right, that we're covering it doggedly. And uh, as we kind of, you know, kind of to shift, I know that we recently had a, a story about the Rams uh, in the latest development in that saga that you edited with your team. If you want to shed a little bit light of light on that, how that yeah. came together and what yeah. impact do you think it had? Yeah, back up just a quick step. I mean, I completely agree with what you said, Liz. We are in a unique place to deploy reporters in ways that no one else can deploy reporters. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have enough reporters. We have, we have a lot of reporters and mm-hmm. we have so many that we can say, no, blank, you're going to do this for the next year. And that's all you're going to do because this really matters. 
Mm-hmm. And so I am keenly aware of that moving into this role and realize, and, and watching, frankly, for are, are, are we in a place where we need that? You know, and maybe we are. We're already making some changes on staff. Those will shake out in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and we're thinking about exactly those issues. So it's, it's just a, it's a really fun time. Um, you know, it's, it's a great profession. I mean, it, it's hard, but it's a ton of fun. Okay, so the Rams thing. Yeah, so, so um, a few weeks ago, basically we got a dump of Rams documents. And it was and, late at night, right? Later. So it, it's, it's a great story to kind of toot the post-dispatch's horn. <laughs> Forgive me for that. But what happened was we had a court reporter who's been in the courthouse forever and ever, Joel Courier. And, and via his relationships, he figured out how, kind of like what mattered and how we could get things that nobody else could get. And he, he, he set the groundwork for us to get these court documents that, that showed um, kind of the path that the Rams took to leaving. And they were court documents that had been under seal? Correct. Thank you. Good point. You need to know that. So they had been sealed by the court. Nobody could have them. And Joel figured out kind of how they might be available. And he worked with Marsha, um, the one we talked about who's retiring, and she worked with our attorneys. And, and, and this is one of those things that like, you can't do unless you have all these parts in place. Right. So Joel works with Marsha, Marsha works with the attorneys, and then one day we just learn, like, oh my God, we're getting these records. And we get hundreds of pages of records. I think it was one afternoon. Okay. It, it was late. Late in the day. My memory is that uh, there were reporters who were working late into the night uh, sifting through those documents. So, again, they come in. You know, we have the staff to set aside people. We had three reporters and two editors reading those documents. We read them all night long. We came in the next morning and kept reading them. By middle of that next day, Austin Hugelay was already drafting a story. Mm-hmm. And all the other reporters and editors were reading and figuring out, you know, what's this? We had the we had the germ of the story, we had the start of the story, and we were basically just feeding him documents. All right, here's the, here's the timeline. This is how this is going to work. This is going to be a chronology. You know, write it straight. Mm-hmm. Like, make it simple. You know, here are the records. We just started lining them up. My desk was top to bottom <laughs> full of records lined up in chronological order. Mm-hmm. And Austin just started writing. Uh, Katie Cole added to it, as did Joel Courier, the courts reporter, and. The three of them just put together a hell of a story in less than three days. Yeah, it's incredible, too, the the storytelling itself, the way that it draws you in with painting a picture of, you know, what was being said publicly while at the same time in these documents reveal what was really being said behind closed doors. And to your point, all of the documents themselves, some of the choice quotes pulled. I mean, really incredible that they did all of this work in with, you know, only a few days and hours to do it. And I, I say this too, like, again, just talking about, like, I know I'm tooting our, our horn here, but like, then, that's kind of the point of the podcast. Well, yeah, it's so, in the name. <laughs> so then online folks, like you guys got involved, then photo got involved. Then, it, you know, it became, as we knew what we were going to write, right. then suddenly we could start talking about how does it, what's it going to look like? When is it going to post? Um, where's it, how's it going to appear in the print product? You know, how's it going to appear online? Like, what is this all going to look like? Mm-hmm. And it was just, yeah, I mean, I think 15 people probably had their hands in the story by the time it was done. Like, that's, like, nobody else can do that. Yeah. Like, that's just something that is the, da- you know, as we joke about, right, it's the daily miracle. How did it feel as an editor, um, 
going through that story and thinking, but I, I covered the NFL's public statements at this point, but they had to send an email saying, no, we're moving to L.A. Like, um, how did that feel? So I've had a lot of emotions about the NFL, as you might imagine, over time, right? Yeah. I, I definitely went through, um, like, periods of, like, really, like, saying, like, this, like, NFL, I'm not going to watch anymore. Like, I don't, I don't want to be... I don't want to make this part of my personal life, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think I've actually come full circle. I, <laughs> I, I think I enjoy watching NFL games again. Like, what my takeaway from the NFL is, it's a business. Yeah. Like, R- let's not pretend yeah. otherwise, right? Right. So, like, know what you're getting into. Know what you're watching. But, like, if you support it, you support it. That's great. As an editor, though, did it have, like, a sense of, I've done this before? Deja did it have vu, a sense yeah. of... of <laughs> This is a great story, and I'm glad I can be here. I was so focused on turning yeah. that into a great story. <laughs> I didn't have time to think on that stuff. I, okay. I really didn't. I mean, in fact, you're making me think on it kind of for the first time. Okay. Um, which yeah, is but cool. again, that speaks to that continuity in the newsroom. You know, you're someone who has been with the paper long enough to have covered the life of this story, and to be here now as an editor, you add your own institutional knowledge, even if it's not coming through in the story. That's valuable. Yeah, no, I, I did play an important role in that story because I had been there and, and gone through it all. There's no question. I mean, it, it, you know, early on, I was able to help Austin and Katie and Joel shape the story quickly into, you know, what's new here, what isn't, you know, how, how do we make this the most relevant to readers? So that was nice. I yeah, agree. Cut, cut through all of that. We'll toot your horn here. That's, Thank you. That's you know, the, how valuable that is. There's going to uh, be plenty of times when... <laughs> Everyone will be angry at me, I'm sure, coming for, going forward, right? Oh, so. gosh. Well, I, I doubt that. Eh, um, not everyone. <laughs> uh, well, to, you know, to keep in everyone's good graces, what are another couple examples of recent stories from your team that you're really proud of that you think accomplished some of the goals that you've set forth for your team? Yeah. Um, so we talked about this earlier. You know, Bryce Gray, our energy environment reporter, has really bird-dugged this, uh, the, the potential closure of the Rush Island Power Center which mm-hmm. is a coal-fired power plant in Jefferson County that ran into trouble with the, uh, well, with the feds in general because it um, boosted its output. Uh, let's let's stay away from the weeds on this one, but basically <laughs> it was polluting more, according to the EPA. Right. And um, so now it, it's going to have to close down. But uh, how that happens, and, and this is the most interesting thing to me, is who's going to pay for it? Yeah. And what Bryce broke just And the this... impact on the community that is relies on it currently. Right. Well, there's there's a million wonderful things that we will continue to chase, but like Maybe not wonderful. There's a million very interesting wrinkles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Beth. You're absolutely right. To me, wonderful is all about is it a good is it a good story? Is yeah. it a good chance to tell a good story? Right. Yes. Yeah, not the event itself. Forgive well, me. No, you're fine. I we... think that's a, it's a very journalistic way to think about it. This is a great story. It's wonderful. The impact on the on the user and on Amarin customers could be awful. Right. Yeah. But yeah. our ability to tell those stories so that readers are informed, so that, you know, as, as this is developing, that we're giving them that service is really important. Right. And as Bryce recently covered, the cost of either keeping Rush Island open or closing it, which has another cost, might be borne by Amron's customers. Right. And that's exactly what I was going to get to is we just broke that this past Sunday. It's like, yeah, this place is polluting. Um, everybody agrees it has to close, including Amron. How is that going to work? Well, they're going to have to build a whole bunch of infrastructure, like electric lines and other kinds of ways to get power to and from the you know the electric grid. Right. That's going to cost money. It's going to cost two hundred forty-four million dollars by current estimates. Who's going to pay for that? Yeah. Well, 
Amron said outright that it's going to try to get ratepayers to pay for things that are court ordered. Ratepayers mean you and me. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is again, it goes back to this. I, I say this a lot again to my team. Is like, listen, we do the hard work, right? We do that. We track things. We we do the labor. We show up at meetings that nobody else wants to show up. Yes. you know, at and and like, that's our job. Do the hard work for the readers for the re- for the region. And I feel the same thing about that Rush Island story. Bryce is doing the hard work. He's tracking it. He's reading these these filings that, let me tell you, ain't fun to read, yeah. right? So I thought that was an excellent story. Um, the other one that we, we talked earlier about was uh, Steph Kukuljohn's coverage of the Amazon warehouse collapse in that tornado. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, doing the hard work, figuring out how the thing was built, talking to people who knew how, how it was built, realizing that this is a vulnerability in warehouses all over the country right. that are built like this, you know? So, and, and, and there's a million other examples, right? Those are some that just came to mind that are from recent months, but this is what we do. We track things, we ask hard questions, and it's, you know, it's really exciting, compelling work. And in that work, you did say, you know, you, we work closely with Roland and other editors. How does that process work in terms of um, editing stories or deciding what reporters cover stories, that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You know, we have essentially three teams. We have a politics team, we have a um, public safety team, and we have a business team. And each of those teams has an editor. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll be Metro editor, so I'll oversee that coverage. And I will also have a small team underneath me. you know, I've worked with Roland now for a bit, and we we're just really straightforward with each other. Like, I think Roland is the second funniest person. Well, no, I guess you maybe you're tied. No, no, no. Roland I am is not. far funnier <laughs> than I am. I, you I you both have very dry sense of humors. Roland is far. I am funnier. not going to rank funny people in the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, I'll, too hard. I'll uh, you know, I'll take that bullet. I think you both uh, have very dry, sarcastic senses of humor. Maybe that just speaks to my personal sensibility. So. <laughs> You know, every, there's a lot of opportunity for other funny folks, but I find you both very entertaining. I'm, I am thrilled to hear it. I'm going to tell my <laughs> wife. She'll roll her eyes. I'm funny. Yeah. Yeah, I'm funny. <laughs> Dang it. Um, so Roland and I are just straightforward with each other. Like we don't, and we laughed about it the other day. Like we don't have time to bicker about stuff. There's too much to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so like, and, and Roland, listen, I re, I lean on Roland. Like let's be let's be clear here. He has decades of experience in journalism, mm-hmm. and. I, I, I just, I lean on him for his judgment. He's got incredible news judgment. Um, you know, we have to deploy reporters. So we talk about how that's going to work. You know, we're, we're constantly talking about who's best for this and who has time to do it. But, but l- listen, it's really straightforward. Who's good. You know, who can do it? <laughs> who has time? Like that's it. Right. Yeah. That's you know. the process beginning and end. There's the process. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier, we talked about, you know, columns and inches and kind of some maybe inside baseball language. Uh, and you've obviously worked at the paper long enough that you've seen how the industry has changed from more of a print focus or entirely print focused to digital. Uh, tell us a little bit about that transition over your career and kind of where you see it going in the future. Well, I mean, so over my career, I mean, we didn't even do online stuff when I first started, right? Like it was, mm-hmm. maybe we had a website. I guess we, we probably did. I think STL Today launched maybe around 2000, but it was, to your point, was not the priority yeah. you know, the way print was. Yeah, so I started in journalism in the in the mid '90s, and 
um, did a bunch of different kinds of journalism for a few years. I got into newspapers heavily, maybe early 2000, I forget. So, so there were, I, th I think you're right, there were websites, but they were pretty rudimentary and they just took what we were putting in print and mm -hmm. put them online. Yeah. So I think the biggest change is we have, when we have, we have tens of thousands of online only readers. And so we're talking, and you two know better or as well as I do how this works. Better. You both know better than I do how this works. <laughs> yeah, we um, definitely know better. Um, yeah. I'm going to say that. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, what we're talking about now is like, how do we best serve readers? And, and a great example is like, I think something that's very important for us going forward is urgency, right? And you'll hear this over and over again from different people. But what it means is, if something's breaking, write four paragraphs and get it online now. Like, not, not in 10 minutes. Like, now. Get it up now. Mm -hmm. And then write through it over the course of the day. Make yes. it better and better and better over yes. the course of the day. And, and actually, it is liberating to do that. When you can write four paragraphs and put it up immediately, then you can pause and say, okay, What do we know? What do we need to know? Right. Is this enough? Right. Are mm -hmm. we done? Right? Mm -hmm. Or do we need to dig into this? And sometimes even we don't know right away. And you see how things develop. And then you're like, oh. Nope, we do have to develop this story. We're going to write through it. You know, we're going to call a million people. We're going to put two people on it, whatever we're going to do. So it, it's, I think more than anything, the, the urgency thing has really changed. Mm -hmm. Before, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody, you know, you kind of got your calls out and, you know, wrote through, you know, wrote the story and turned it in at six and, that was deadline. And yeah, it was you didn't need anything before then. Right. Yeah. But done. it's relative to where the world was, right? Because there wasn't that, you know, without that expectation that we would be, you know, covering things as they develop, to your point, breaking them as soon as possible and then fault writing through. You know, the, that's just a reflection of how much the industry and the medium has changed. And our readers. Yeah. Right? I mean, they expect it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so you, people, if there's something going on and, and, you, and you see a hint of it, like, you want to know what it is now. You don't want to know in tomorrow morning right you right. like the most perfect version that could post tomorrow morning is not going to serve readers the way that a developing story is going to and to your point what's so wonderful is we can do both we actually do both right so we serve readers well by posting immediately and we serve readers well by putting it in context and writing a deep a deeper story the next morning and readers can have both and and that's okay i mean i think one of the things that we're doing very well I, I, God, I, people would probably argue with me on this one but i think we're doing both really well yeah. Like we're still producing an excellent print product and we're killing it digitally. So we're pretty yeah. cool. I mean, I'm not going to argue with us killing it digitally, no. you know, from like just a job standpoint. Um, but no, I totally Says the digital ladies. <laughs> yeah. But I totally agree with you. And I think that goes back to that being uniquely positioned in the community to um, to serve both roles. And, yeah. you know, we're evolving with what readers, where they are, what they need, and always keeping that in mind, obviously, with the growth of the paper and to kind of that point to the future of what they may need and where they may need it. Yeah. No, it's it, it really is an exciting time. I mean, I think... One of the best things about now is that we're, we're turning the corner. You know, obviously we had 20 years of downsizing. Mm -hmm. And as every, and you know, every piece of this industry has experienced. Well, there's plenty of news gathering organizations that have not, that are not where we are. Yeah. Like, or do you mean for better or worse? <laughs> for worse. Yeah, exactly. We have not yet figured out what their digital strategy is. Yeah. And, and, and we really we really know now. Like, it's going to change. We're going to grow and develop. We're, we're probably still pretty young. I mean, we are clearly still pretty young in, the, in it. But um, 
but we now know what we need to do. Mm -hmm. And that's like great. You know, we're not kind of feeling our way through the dark entirely. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I, you know, again, speaking from the digital team, I think that's exciting. You know, it it's again, just about finding those readers, finding those listeners, ahem, um, and wanting to keep doing the great work. We're doing the foundation of the work that we've always done, but just evolving with the needs of readers. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I think going forward, what you're going to see is increasing push towards urgency mm-hmm. more and more get stuff up fast online. I think that we are also going to see an increasing, you know, more and more diving deep into stories, you know, and really figuring out what's happening. And we may not get that, you know, in the first four hours. Maybe we won't get it for a week, but we're going to keep after stuff. And I, and I think that's really exciting too. Um, again, another thing that I say a lot with my guys is, with my team is like, what we're writing right now, what we're going for is revelatory enterprise. Right. Well, we want to write the breaking story. Right? Yeah, well, of course, yeah. And then we want to write something that makes people stop and say, oh. Yeah, and the, the context of it. I didn't know that, yeah. right? Not to end like on that note, but I know that you have a lot of other things that you need to do. And as do Liz and I. Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I, I'm certain that I saw Mr. Ashkar's head stick around the corner. Yeah, and that we was for you, not here. for us. I know. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, we're going to be off next week and back the week after. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you. It was really nice to be here. I appreciate it.